0: This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by DexSecure. This week, Rebecca and I chat with Jeff Williams about moving to serverless safely. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 133. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly.
1: And I'm Rebecca Marshburn.
0: And this is Serverless Chats. Hey, Rebecca, how you doing today?
1: You know, Jeremy, I'm doing really well. Uh, you and I were both up very late, and I noticed this because I went on Twitter last night, or this morning, let's say, and it was like 2 a.m., and you had just tweeted. I did. <laughs> uh, I know that feeling of preparing for launches, of doing launch things, of getting really excited. Common Room is moving in that direction, too, but yours just happened so launch 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 yes. tell us yes. about it
0: yeah well we just launched serverless cloud on product hunt today um so this when this episode comes out it'll have been a few weeks ago at this point but but yeah it was it was super exciting to to get that up and running and uh, of course you know uh, launches are Crazy, and I tell you one thing though. Uh, one thing that we think about with serverless cloud, and this is something you should be thinking about everywhere, is security. And we don't talk about serverless security very often. I used to have a section in my newsletter called serverless security, especially when there was some early companies like Protego and Ori Segal's company there, PureSec. You know, there was a lot of articles about uh, serverless security back then, and then those companies got acquired, and those articles all kind of went away. So it seems like there's not a lot on serverless security anymore. And maybe that's a good thing because it's already built in. Maybe it's not a good thing because we're not talking about it. We should be. But anyways, our guest today is going to talk about serverless security. So Rebecca, could you introduce him for us?
1: Absolutely. Uh, Our guest today is co-founder and chief technology officer at Contrast Security, Jeff Williams. And he's here to talk about what I think sometimes a lot of people, you know, it's like those unsexy parts. They're like, oh, it's like, you know, the mail system, and there's like, oh, it just works. They were like, and you're like, well, when it doesn't work, you notice, and it's actually really bad. And so it's so important. I'm so excited to have someone who's focused on these parts that I think a lot of people, when it works, people don't think about it, but it's so important that it works. So, hey, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks, Rebecca. It's great to be here. Uh, And I got to say, I think that security when it works right is super sexy. So let's just start (laughs) there.
1: Yes, that's going to be the name of this episode, security when it works right. It's just security is super sexy, period. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So Jeff, why don't you tell the audience a bit about yourself and what Contrast Security does?
2: Yeah, sure. So uh, again, my name is Jeff Williams. I'm uh, CTO and co-founder at Contrast and uh, I've been in application security since there was application security. Uh, actually, I started one of the world's first application security teams at Exodus Communications, which was a big data center company in the dot-com boom era, and uh, it totally went bankrupt uh, later. But we built a great practice doing security on you know all the dot-com kinds of major websites and helping them secure their code. Actually, quick, quick side story. It was GE uh, came to us and said, hey, we love your data centers, but we want to make sure every line of code is secure before it goes on the internet. And, you know, my management fell all over them. So they're like, yep, we can do that. No problem. <laughs> and they're like, Jeff, you got to go figure it out. So we we built a fantastic team. And actually, uh, when Exodus went bankrupt, uh, we spun out a, a consulting company and we kept going for uh, about 12 more years, selling security services, doing code review and pen testing and training and AppSec programs and just working with development teams on security. So, uh, that's, that's kind of how we got there. And then we had an idea. I, I got involved with OWASP along the way. And, uh, that was really good for Aspect, my consulting company. And, uh, we participated a lot there instead of doing like traditional marketing, like, you know, how security vendors are kind of annoying with their marketing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> instead of doing that, what we did was we actually said, let's spend that money on doing open source projects and contributing something back to the community. We did, you know, I wrote the OS top 10 we built WebGoat, we built SAPI and the ASBS, all these things that are now, you know, kind of part of the AppSec world. We built those and contributed them for free, but it opened the door for us to talk to, you know, big companies and help them with their AppSec programs. So I really love that, that way of doing business and along the way we, uh, we invented a new way of doing application security analysis from the inside out, more like, uh, a profiler or a debugger than a, uh, you know, than a traditional outside in kind of mm. scanner. So it turns out when you do security from inside the running application, you get way more context and you can be way more accurate and way faster. And that's kind of what developers need. So that's what contrast does the whole platform to support all the things that you need to do to make sure that your code comes out secure. Yeah, that's you know, awesome.
1: before Jeremy asks you anything, I'm gonna say that does sound pretty sexy. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's uh, it is really exciting when it works. Some people have called it magic. Uh, I love that too. All
0: right, so we might be getting a little off topic with the uh, with the sexy talk here, but l- let's go back to <laughs> OWASP for a second here. Um, so OWASP is something that it's really funny. I've worked with so many developers over my career, and Like just amazing the basic security things that people don't know. And the OWASP Top 10 is such a great resource because it, again, it just lists those top, you know, those top, uh, well, like get the top 10 risks, right? Or, or uh, vulnerabilities that, that you know, most applications on the web will face. So let's start there just in case users don't know, because, uh, you know, AppSec is in hugely important. You know, uh, you know, uh, Werner says all the time, you know, security from day one, or it's, you, know, you should think security first or whatever. And I just don't think a lot of people do. So let's sort of level set the audience here. If you haven't heard of the, uh, Owasp top ten. Why don't you just quickly explain? You don't maybe have to give all of them, but just maybe hit the the, the big points of what that's all about.
2: Yeah, sure. So, Owasp is, is interesting because it does the, its whole mission is to make application security accessible to everyone, right? As opposed to when I when we started Owasp, all that knowledge was locked up in the heads of like a few consultants that did this kind of work, and we said, no, we got to make all of that public. We got to make it, you know, known, or we're never going to make any progress here. So. Uh, the all Stop 10 was very instrumental in doing that. And basically, uh, you know, me and a few of the folks at Aspect, uh, we said, let's, let's just write down the biggest risks, And so we did it in the early days. We did it all just from our knowledge of the industry. And so it, at that time it included things like, uh, authentication, access control, input validation. Uh, you know, that covers a bunch of injection kinds of flaws, some things about cookies and, uh, you know, a, a few other risks, some encryption things, but uh, pretty straightforward stuff like basic security kinds of, of vulnerabilities. And here's the weird thing. It's been 20 years now. We did the first one in yeah. 2002. Uh, and so, yeah, 20 years. And it's unfortunately still basically the same stuff in the OS 10. And I had this idea when we started it, like, hey, let's put these ten out. We'll probably, uh, you know, knock off a few of these, and then, uh, you know, next year or a few years from now, we'll we'll move the bar up, and we'll get we'll bring the whole industry along with us. But sometimes when you set out to build a, a a floor, you actually end up building a ceiling. And so there's it's, you know, it's unfortunate, but we should be way farther down the road than we are in in AppSec. Uh, I feel, still feel like we're struggling with basic things like. Why is SQL injection still a problem? It's still a problem in serverless. We can talk about that, but it's, you know, it's, it's absolutely crazy.
0: All right. Well, I think, I think the other thing too, and and this is interesting as, you know, and I want to talk a little bit about, you know, where developers fit in now versus, you know, maybe, uh, you know, the, the, the operations team, the people that were doing uh, security before, because. You know, with more traditional systems, you had, you know, like you talked about, these scanners that were helping to mitigate, even WAFs and things like that will help mitigate some of these SQL injection attacks and some of the other things that happen. But it is, it, it's always these new batch of developers that keep coming in, right? So you always have sort of fresh. Uh, I guess fresh eyes or or, or or new people that that don't know some of these uh, specific things. So maybe thinking about moving from you know more traditional you know sort of uh, wafs and other things like that that were in place before that would help mitigate some of that. What are some of the sort of new I guess the new vulnerabilities moving to the cloud where some of that stuff is sort of shifted away from that? Especially maybe in serverless where you know you might not have the benefit of of having all of those uh, all of those network scanners and and. Yeah some of that, you know, some of those attacks can make it to your code.
2: We are exactly right. Like those, those, what I call them is like traditional or legacy kinds of tools that work from the outside in. So those tools aren't fantastic because they're, they don't have enough context to make smart decisions. So like a WAF, if you think about it, it's sitting at the network perimeter and it's trying to look at HTTP traffic and decide whether there's attacks in there. Right. I don't know if you've looked at any HTTP traffic recently, but it ain't simple anymore. It's not like name value pairs. It's JSON and XML and serialized objects and websocket and all kinds of stuff. And you can't just look at it and go, "Oh, that's an attack." Right. It's you don't have enough context. You don't know what that data is used for. And it's the same thing with vulnerability detection tools, like scanners that you might run on your your, you know, traditional monolithic web app. Like that's one thing. But try and run it on a set of APIs or a set of serverless functions, and it's a whole different ballgame. You don't have enough context to invoke the function right and understand the response. So these these outside-in approaches don't work very well. Even static analysis doesn't work very well on serverless because you don't have enough context. Because instead of having one big thing that you're analyzing, now you got a thousand serverless functions sprawled all over the place. And right. The the static tool can't assemble those and figure out what it looks like at runtime. So you can't analyze it. So that's the problem. Now the the solution going forward is what I tried to introduce before is you got to get more context. So you got to get inside the environment. So for serverless it's, you got to get inside the serverless environment, understand all the pieces that are there, the S3 buckets and the functions and the data stores and so on. And you got to see how they interact. And you've got to build a picture that then you can analyze for, for security flaws.
1: So I want to get your take on, we we love to get our guest vision of the future of serverless applications. And Mm. usually we maybe, you know, save that question to the end. Like we talk about it and Mm. then we're like, okay, so what's your vision for the future, but we actually thought it'd be a really great way to work backwards from what your vision of the future of serverless applications is, and then work backwards from what we need to do in order to achieve and like get to that vision. So maybe you could describe a little bit about what your vision for that future is. And then and then we can get into like the current security risks and how we build toward that future.
2: That's a fantastic question. So the uh, there's a huge amount of interest in serverless. Some of our customers are all in. We've got customers with a million serverless functions. We've also got a lot of customers that are dipping their toe into it. They're building a few pieces uh, in serverless environments. But I'm almost 100% sure that the future is really complicated. It's applications that are split up into lots of different pieces. Some monoliths, some traditional APIs, some serverless, multi-cloud. So we're going you know across different environments, containers, uh, you know, it's
0: edge functions.
2: Exactly.. Yeah. It's really going to be a, a complex environment. And so, like I said, to do security analysis, you're going to have to understand all the pieces and how they fit together. And that's, that also includes uh, open source libraries and frameworks uh, as, as part of those pieces, each one has open source in it. You gotta understand that. So in terms of how we do security in that environment, uh, we've, we've gotta have sensors all over the place, right? We've gotta have sensors that are reporting back like, hey, here's what pieces are in this environment. Here's how they connect together. Here's data about what data they're processing and what they do with it. Show me all the backend connections. You're going to have to build that visibility in order to do the security analysis. And so how do we get there? Well, it's, you know, it's going to be piecemeal. I, if I had to put a name on it, I think, you know, ultimately it's, it's like transparency or observability, but for security purposes across a complex environment. And, you know, we're kind of in the early days of this, there's very little real observability in the pieces of our software ecosystem today. So, you know contrast. We're not all the way there. We're building out, you know, pieces of that visibility, um, but it, it's, uh, and I think we're way ahead of the curve here. But it's, it's still got a ways to go.
0: Yeah, and I, and I love that idea of the, the outside. uh, Or the inside out, sorry, because I I think there are too many traditional vendors now that uh, that are looking at this, of saying like, you know, we can just scan packets and all that kind of stuff. But if you think about it, like, you know, with a JSON Web Token or whatever, it's it's encrypted, or it's you know, and and then you you decode it in your application code, right? So how are you? And you need the keys to do that, right? So where does that get decoded? Where do you look at that? You've got you said, you know, you got uh, people uploading to buckets. I actually did a uh, I did a proof of concept where you upload to an S3 bucket. It fires off a, a lambda function and then tries to like insert the name of the file into uh, right. you know SQL uh, database uh, or to MySQL and when it does that if you don't sanitize the input you can name the file name anything you want um, and so you could do you know semicolon delete all or whatever you know whatever right. command right, is right. right and so and and again it, it's unlikely that some of that stuff will happen but really there is a there is a focus on uh or there should be a focus on making sure that these get mitigated at the application level as opposed to the network level but yeah. but to to dive in a little bit more cuz this is something that has always fascinated me is you think about the shared responsibility model of cloud, right? And there's already a bunch of things that cloud does for you that you don't have to worry about. I don't have to worry about network protection. Somebody's doing that for me. And, Mm -hmm. And as we move closer to serverless where we get to things like managed services or functions as a service, you know, now the runtimes are managed for me. In some cases, everything's managed for me. And so really the, it just comes down to sort of the application itself, right? Which I think is where contrast is really focusing, but just, you know, maybe as a general, again, another level set here is what are some of those serverless security benefits that you just kind of get out of the box?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, there's, I think there's three key areas in serverless security that we got to focus on. The the first is the security of your code and the service environment doesn't really help you with that, right? You can introduce uh, an XXE or a a, a unsafe deserialization flaw in your serverless code. Uh, You got to deal with that. There's also the open source piece. Like you include a bunch of open source functions. You got to deal with that. The platform's not going to do that for you. Um, And then there's the, the, One of the key differences between traditional monolith kind of web environments and serverless is that you can control the identity and access management permissions of each of your functions. So that's actually really powerful. It limits what that code can do. Um, and so it's a a powerful mechanism that's present in serverless environments that, uh, isn't in traditional environments. There's no way to do that in a traditional application. Your whole app gets basically root privilege. But with serverless functions, you can narrow it down really carefully. Now, below that, everything comes with your serverless environment, like ser- con- securing, uh, you know, the operating system level, the network level, like all there's all all that happens automatically. So there's a million things you don't have to do, and I think that's why we're seeing such rapid adoption of, of serverless because there's a lot of stuff that just comes for free. You want it to be elastic? Great, uh, happens automatically. Ultimate scale. So uh, I, I guess. I think it's, it's interesting how, how big bets people are placing on serverless. And I, I heard recently that AWS spends half of their marketing budget on serverless, which is obviously massive. I mean, I think that's a right. massive bet and you're probably, you're probably not going to do well betting against AWS in this market.
0: <laughs> but you're, you're hundred percent right about the, the IAM stuff, because that is just one of the things where I, I try to tell. There's so many benefits to isolating code, you know, a little snippet of code into its own function. Yeah. I mean, one of the things, again, we're, we're SQL injection. Let's just take that, for example. Where that becomes such a problem is because you have a bunch of functions that might be signing up or, you know, signing up new users, right? So they do have to do an update or an insert, right? And then you have other functions that might just be reading things. You're just pulling back product data right. or whatever that is. And then you have a few of those functions that are like, well, we do need to delete, you know, a record here, or we need to delete this user, or we need to manipulate it some way. And the problem is, is that when you give a container or a VM, you know, permission to use that, it has full permission to do whatever you allowed it to do within that database, and they can do anything. Whereas with serverless, and, and and this is a real risk uh, and I, I want to talk about these risks in a minute and, and I, I think Rebecca's going to ask you a question about that but the the re- there's a real risk of using open source packages and having somebody manipulate that especially when you have you know thousands of functions and all of these automated build services that are constantly downloading the latest versions if you're not locking package versions and things like that there's all kinds of issues there. And so if you download colors or something like that that you know right. that somebody decided to not even exploit it wasn't exploited i mean the developer did it himself right you know something like that that could access your full database one one included package that maybe helps add a shim or a padding to a text string could go in and delete everything in your database so it's just crazy to think about the amount of risk that you can open yourself up to when you're using you know potentially untrusted third party packages
2: yeah uh, it's uh, it's complicated because uh Open source software is in general, in my opinion, really pretty good. I mean, I've looked at a lot of code over the years. I did tons of manual code review and, you know, enterprise application code that, that companies have written for themselves is often not as good as what you see in open source packages. There's some advantages in working in public uh, where you you don't want to embarrass yourself with (laughs) crummy code. So there, I, I don't think that anyone should take away the message. Like we got to stop using open source code. That right. would be. Oh, definitely terrible. not. Yeah. But you gotta be careful and smart about how you use open code. It's not free. When you use an open source library, you're saving a bunch of work upfront, but you're taking on an obligation to keep that open source up to date. If there's a, a known vulnerability gets discovered, you need to be able to replace it quickly and get to a safe version or use a a technology like RASP, like runtime Mm -hmm. application self-protection that will prevent those vulnerabilities from being exploited, uh, ensure that inside out kind of approach. But you have to have a strategy for dealing with open source because they're guaranteed there's gonna be another log for shell, could be today. We never, you never know. So you gotta have that, that infrastructure in place so that you can very quickly respond.
1: That's such a humbling reminder. Just like PSA, right? Open source is not free, and yeah. that's like a very such a true statement. Or else would be just called like free software, and it's not. It's like it's not just free code. It's 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 open source, and there's a distinction between the names for a very real reason.
0: Hi everyone, I just want to take a moment to thank our sponsor, DeckSecure. DeckSecure empowers web developers by automating tasks that are essential for every website, freeing up developer time to focus on building. DeckSecure currently has three products to help your team. Their web asset optimizer optimizes content like HTML, images, CSS, JavaScript, fonts, videos, and more. Their third-party optimizer takes care of all your third-party assets. And their intelligent network optimizer enhances the performance and resiliency of your website. DexSecure also has an open source product called OpenDexSecure, a cloud agnostic edge development framework. Now, what I love about OpenDex is that the developers can jump straight into product building and not worry about dealing with setup and all the other roadblocks that come from the complexity and configurations of other popular CDNs. If you're interested in trying DexSecure's products, you can for free. Just visit DexSecure's website at dexsecure.com to sign up and learn more. That's D E X dot com.
1: I think this underscores, uh, like you said, right? The future is really complicated when you're talking about like the vision of serverless and complicated, this idea of complications has come up a a few different times. And then you talked about, you know, three key components of what needs to be secure and security of your code, security of open source projects, and then at the function level, right? Those IAM permissions. So how would you describe like the most basic level the current security risks and vulnerabilities in serverless itself like across those three components
2: yeah so let's just go through those three categories It's, it's not too hard actually the first category is about your code and you need to think about really it's kind of the same stuff as in the os top 10 for the most part uh it's you know things like authentication access control encryption Injection, uh, there's a whole range of injection problems that you really need to be aware of. Like, uh, you know, it's not just the traditional SQL injection and command injection. There's also, uh, you know, more, more complicated things like SSRF is really, uh, interesting in a server environment that's tricking a serverless function into issuing an arbitrary HTTP request on your behalf so that you can, using that kind of attack, you can, you know, kind of drill through the layers of a serverless environment um and then there's just you know there's uh there's problems handling things like xml and and json like maybe you've got an unsafety serialization flaw uh there's the same kinds of flaws that we see in every environment uh since you know since back before 2002 hey. uh, they show up in serverless environments they're they're always translated a little bit and it's I've seen a few generations of this now is, uh, you know, we, we figured out how to build monolith security after 10 years of doing it. Uh, we got okay at that and then it's, it's all APIs. Right. And, uh, you know, now we Surprise. don't really see, right. <laughs> and I, I mean, I feel like everyone was like, yeah, new environment. We don't have to worry about that. All the security crap. And they just, you know, th- then it's 10 years before we figure out how to secure APIs and now we've got serverless and I think, you know, I don't want that that YOLO to happen again. Uh, It's still important to focus on security. And and frankly, you know, uh, we should be better about seeing these risks before we add them to our applications, but we're not, we're not very good at seeing things in advance, even though there's, you know, there's plenty of people going, Hey, that could be insecure. Hey, that could be insecure. We don't do anything about it as a, as a culture, as a world until there's a big breach. Right. And that's, that's just kind of dumb. That's like, well, I'm not going to wear seatbelts till I crash my car. Let's, we're not doing that, right? Although yeah. I didn't wear a helmet until I really had a bad wreck. So I guess there's that.
0: <laughs> uh, well, I actually started wearing a ski helmet. I was uh, very early wearing a ski helmet, and I was yeah. like one. It was like probably like one in fifty people would wear ski helmets when I first started wearing one, maybe. 15 something years ago now everybody wears them and i'm like well i was ahead of the curve there so um, and and that's the thing is i care about security and safety but so i'm actually curious about this question because i'm almost always in the aws ecosystem but you've got cloudflare and you've got fastly and we've got google cloud and azure and you know every other you know every other cloud that's popping up and i'm really curious about you know, the shared responsibility model is going to be different in each one of these slightly. I mean, for the most part, there'll, there'll be a lot of commonalities there, but I'm curious if security, especially when it comes to serverless is going to, I don't know, maybe vary across those different clouds and different implementations. And, and I guess the question I, I sort of have is a, more about something like maybe Kubernetes, for example. So if you have a team running Kubernetes and you're managing and patching all of the, you know, 50 different processes that you have to run to make that work to get of your developers a, a serverless experience you know how much more responsibility does that add on to your team whereas you know sort of relying on the cloud in general um, or relying on you know the managed services from azure or from google or from uh, aws is there a, is there a big shift in responsibility there or do you still see that as being the i, I guess a good level that you can provide at least for the developer
2: so uh, it's a little complicated question cuz everybody builds software differently so I, I, I make this analogy a lot, uh, I say, look, imagine you're, you're thinking about the different ways you might have a cake company, right? They built, they make cakes. You might have a small mom and pop shop with some specialized equipment that makes wedding cakes. And at the other end of the scale, you might have like Tasty Cake Factory, which is super automated and just, you know, pumping out, uh, plastic packages. Uh, very different businesses. Both are fine. Like they're both profitable, healthy companies, but they do things incredibly differently. And I don't think there's a right answer for any particular company on how they should build software. I try as a security person. It's sometimes really easy to go in and say like, well, you should do this. Well, you probably really need to understand who you're talking to and how Hmm. they build software. Uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about like, well, you need to shift left. Well, I don't know. Maybe in your software company, it makes sense to do security. Maybe you should shift right. There's a lot of good reasons for, for doing that. At least if you're talking about, you know, protecting production assets, maybe you want to do more in QA because doing it shifting left, there's too much noise doing it early in the process when you don't have a running system. Maybe you need to actually put it all together and see the serverless functions and how they interact. That's I think important. So like to answer your question, I think that the North star is automate security, so. As you build your pipelines, as you build your your 50 processes to deploy your Kubernetes environment, as you build, you know, your process to deploy serverless, you know, think about how much can you automate? And the answer is, you know, what you want at the end is you want confidence, continuous confidence that all the code you've deployed is secure enough for what you're doing. And you set the bar on what secure enough means because only you understand your risk. If you're the... You're building a lunchtime cafeteria menu. Yeah, who cares? Like, uh, it's not super attackable. You're building the next, uh, you know, swift processing system for financial transactions. You've got to be really sure. So I think the key is to get security hundred percent automated. So you can make a code change. It can go through a pipeline of some sort and you end up with that code running in production and. You end up with the evidence that says, Hey, we tested this. We're sure that we got, you know, authentication, right. We tested it for injection flaws. We tested it for, you know, a a variety of different things that could go wrong. Until you do that, you're never going to be able to have really DevSecOps because if you have people, if you have to have people in the, in the critical path, then you're going to wreck your DevSecOps, right? Because it takes people a lot of time to do things, you know, it might take a week for them to do a pen test or to review the output of a static analysis tool that generated a thousand false positives or, or whatever. But that's going to prevent you from pushing that code into production. And ultimately dev teams, they just want to go fast. That's how they get maximum innovation for their companies. That's what, you know, that, that's what makes companies winners in their sector is being the best at software.
0: Right. And I think that, that security needs to introduce just the right amount of friction to make it hard to do the bad things, but easy to do the easy things, right? And also, just it's almost lunchtime where I am. You mentioned cake. You mentioned cafeteria, and it just got me thinking about that. But Rebecca, I don't think we've ever talked about cake on this show, have we?
1: No, but I was also delighted. It's morning time here, and I'm still like, ooh, all right, taste a cake. I
0: don't know. Do cake you for have a do you, it's fine. do you have a favorite cake, Jeff? What's your favorite cake type of? It's cake? all chocolate for me. Chocolate, chocolate, hundred percent. Right. I'm a big carrot cake chocolate fan. With chocolate. Yep. Ooh, chocolate with chocolate, oh, okay. that's good. Cool. that can be
2: good. What about red velvet?
0: Uh, I can do red velvet. What good. about you, Rebecca?
1: I'm really, I'm with Jeff here on the chocolate. Yeah. Also could get down with carrot cake, red velvet. I always leave a little bit, I have a little bit more to be desired every time. I, I like have an expectation of red velvet, and it's usually like right below the bar for me.
2: Interesting. Yeah. Can be dry. Right. well,
0: hopefully we didn't lose a bunch of listeners with that. But anyways, Rebecca, would you like to continue?
1: Yeah. I, you know, the idea of speed is simple, but to maybe continue on this theme, going fast is complicated, right? You're saying how you want developers to go fast, but enabling developers to go fast, there's actually all these things that go into it. And I'm wondering how much of your security posture like relies or ends up becoming part of the developer's responsibility, right? Like security at the application level. How do you think about enabling developers to go fast, but there are these, you know, like new moments and new paradigms and ways of having to shift your thinking in terms of security yeah. at the application level, and then yeah. how you mitigate that balance between like developer overhead and that ability to to go fast.
2: Yeah. So as a fantastic question, as usual, uh, I think here's the way I think about it is if you go into a company that hasn't done a lot of appsec work in the past and you add a security tool to start checking for vulnerabilities. You'll probably find some and you create a backlog and I, I want to get past the backlog, like you, you've got to work through that, but what you should be optimizing for is the future situation when you've, you've eliminated the backlog and now you've, you're just talking about the new vulnerabilities that get introduced with each change. So that's, that's what we want to optimize for because that is going to drive you know, the the future of our pipeline. And so one thing you can do is you can. Try to accelerate the mean time to remediate. If you reduce that time, it means you're getting vulnerabilities to the people that need them faster with the context that they need in order to fix them. And so you can enable developers to do their own fixing. And, you know, we've been able to push this to really fast. Like you can get feedback to developers within seconds and all the information they need. So they say, oh, that query I just created, I forgot to parameterize the query, the parameter. So like, let's. uh, You know, make that change, check in clean code, and then you go clean through the pipeline. But you can even do better than that. If what, what you really want to do is, is, and I call it optimizing for learning is ultimately finding and fixing stuff is great, but if you're finding and fixing a lot of stuff, it still takes time. So what you want to do is reduce the number of things that you have to find and fix, and that means learning has to happen. So what you're really trying to do is teach developers not to make that SQL injection mistake in the first place or use the IAM permissions the right way in the first place or not use insecure libraries in the first place. And the right way to do that is to give them really great feedback fast Mm -hmm. so that they have all that information. And, you know, developers learn by doing, if you give them feedback, you know, months later, uh, side note, the average time to remediate vulnerabilities if you're using a static analysis tool is 290 days that's from one of our competitors but that's way too long wow (laughs) yeah that is shocking we've reduced that to about a week across our all of our customers across tens many tens of thousands of applications so that's that's exciting i think we can push it even more i think we can get vulnerabilities remediated within a day i think it's it's reasonable it's a stretch goal but Clearly, 290 days is way too long. There is zero learning going on at that rate. If you can get it down to a day, developers are going to learn. They're going to stop making those mistakes. And maybe we can stamp out some of these damn vulnerabilities in the OS top 10 for 20 years. But I think optimizing for learning is the key.
0: Yeah. And I I can't remember what I coded yesterday. So if it's something that's 290 days old, I would have no idea from it. But so this whole optimized learning thing, this is, you know, this is super important because we talk about learning and education with serverless all the time. I mean, it's just people don't. It's a new paradigm. It's a different way to think about stuff. And so I get it that, you know, you got to go out there. You got to find resources. You got to you know go through the process. You got to build things yourself. You got to learn how to do this stuff. Security has been around for so long. And like you said, with the top 10, like this hasn't changed. It's the same stuff over and over and over again, but people still aren't learning and that's potentially because we haven't asked people to directly, especially with ops teams and we talked a little bit about that. But I'm curious, you know, besides this idea of you know more instant feedback, which is great by the way, like if you write some code and next thing you know, you start getting alerts saying, oh, by the way, there might be a SQL injection attack or you know, a yeah. sequ- uh, SQL injection vulner- vulnerability here or maybe remote execution or this is over permissioned or things like that, that's all super helpful. But what other paths can developers take you know, sort of to learn more about you know app sec beyond becoming a security expert. Like, are there? I mean, I hate yeah. to think about shortcuts, but besides reading the top ten um, and saying, okay, I get it. Um, like, what are what are some of the paths maybe that that devs and anybody listening right now who are building applications you need to be thinking about security? So, how how do you learn more about it?
2: Yeah, a lot of people will say like, well, you'd get training and trainings. Like, we have to train. Uh, we're not going to train our way out right. of this. I did, and so this I. I'm, you know, Mia culpa here. I, I trained, I did instructor led training for many years, probably 5,000 developers, and I created an e-learning course that was used by lots more people, but the problem is they're always a little bit generic because they don't know exactly what environment I'm using, exactly what libraries I'm using, exactly what IDE I'm using. Like it's all custom to me. And so I, then I have to do this translation from like this generic training that says like, don't do SQL injection, use parameterized queries to something that works in my environment and my ORM. And so I think it's actually better to get a great tool that works, that's compatible with your framework and your libraries and your environment that gives you that feedback on exactly the code that you're working, call it just in time training, Mm. right? So you get feedback on the code you're working on and that is the best way to learn because. You, we can't teach 30 million developers in the world everything about security. There's just no way. I think, you know, OWASP had a, 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 their big, hairy, audacious goal for uh, last year was to train 2,000 developers. I'm like, you know, it's dropping who cares? The bucket. It's 2,000 out of 30 million. It's not even a rounding right. error. It's just, you know, there's no way we're going to get there that way. So we've got to be able to give developers feedback in a way that they are willing to consume it.
0: Yeah and, and I'm I'm actually kind of curious so if if companies are moving to serverless right and we talk about this all the time yeah. where it's like what do you have to do and of course you look at Liberty Mutual and you look at Lego engineering and some of these other companies that create serverless developer enablement teams where they basically have to like you know they have to put in best practices they have to bake in security they have to you know create patterns and and do all these things to make sure that uh, you know they're yeah. following all the compliance and things like that That's a huge step, especially for smaller companies or startups or things like that. So maybe what's some advice that you can give for companies that actually want to start using serverless, but also, you know, maybe aren't as good with AppSec. So like how do companies go from, or how do they adopt serverless and do it safely?
2: So I think the big picture goal is to turn security into code, right? If you can make it something that runs as part of your pipeline and checks your serverless functions, it has to be automated. So you've got to turn it into code somehow. And you're right. They make, they make their own policies. They say, Hey, here's how we're going to use this framework. Here's how we're going to use this library. You want to check those things, but you got to automate it somehow. So, you know, our approach is to provide a platform that allows you to express those rules in an automatable format, right? So, uh. I think that's kind of the goal is like, it's the bottom up is how good is your platform for turning security into code. And then the top down is like, well, what are the things that we, you know, we need to figure out to turn into code and make part of the automated pipeline. And when you bring those together, then you can have a pipeline that goes really fast into production, but it's got to be accurate. And I didn't, I didn't get, normally my rant is about accuracy. Accuracy in security tools is the key. If they're not accurate, you have to have people involved. That's the only way to figure out it's a false positive. That's the only way to figure out if you missed something and it's a false negative. You have to have accuracy because then if it's accurate, you can give it right to developers with confidence that they're not going to quit or delay their, you know, spend three days figuring out whether it's a false positive only to walk away because it's, it's annoying. And it's true of, uh, code checking tools it's cool of uh, it's true of library checking tools like they call them sca tools or software composition analysis tool to check your libraries and it's true of, of the permissions thing we did a cool thing with our iam permissions checking we figure out what what permissions each function needs mm-hmm. by watching it run we watch what it asks for and then we look at the policy that's defined and said wow you've massively Overdefine the policy, like you've got a wild card in here, if you've got like a dozen permissions and you only needed this one, and then we just rewrite it for you and give you the new policy to just paste in uh, in on your serverless functions, it's a really fast way of giving perfect feedback to developers. So it's got accuracy, it's got speed, and it's got automatability, which is, uh, that's the, the recipe for success here.
0: Yeah. So never, never use, uh, never use star permissions. I, the one that always gets me is when people use dynamo DB colon star and you're like, you do realize that you could delete the table, um, with, uh, with that, or you could, uh, you know, like, uh, you can change all kinds of things about it. So yeah, star permissions, very, very bad.
2: It's just really hard to figure out what the permissions are supposed to be because, you know, you don't know what, thing, what what is your library using? What is, uh, you know, this? It, it's hard to go figure out. So we actually watch the function run and calculate the appropriate permissions. Uh, we think it's really exciting.
1: Yeah, security is not the place to YOLO, you know? You're just like, right. but just like there was a moment in time, uh, actually a lot of us uh, are still living in this moment where, you know, infrastructure was not as code, but now there is this idea of infra- infrastructure as code. I think it makes a ton of sense that security as code, like that, like that, right. that, that tracks, that definitely tracks. Well, so Jeff, you keep saying we, but by we, you mean contrast. And, yeah. and I, I want to allow you to talk a little bit more about contrast. And I think a fun way to do this might be spoiler alert for our listeners. We got to talk to Jeff, you know, a couple of minutes before we actually started recording. And you were like, security belongs everywhere, not just in the software that we imagine it to be in, not just in the applications that we associate with, you know, digital technology. So maybe you could share that kind of fun, surprising story about uh, one of your customers, about this idea of security belonging everywhere and how Contrast brings that to fruition.
2: Yeah, thanks. That's a great opportunity. I appreciate it. Uh, So yeah, one of our customers is uh, a Company that you wouldn't think would have a lot of security needs. They build power tools. Uh, they're one of the larger power tool companies. And uh, when I when I first started, we were talking to them. I was like, you what? What? Where are we going to secure their their website or something? And actually, it turns out that modern power tools are IoT devices. They talk to serverless functions. They've got dashboards. They've got all the mobile apps. They've got all kinds of pieces of technology. And, uh, so we went in and started talking to them about our platform and really our platform does three major things. So we help on the custom code problem. We've got several different technologies. So we've got like a, you know, a, a technology you'd use on typical web apps. We've got one on serverless. We've got a static tool. all So you can cover the, the, your whole portfolio of applications. And we work across Java, .NET, .NET Core, Node, Ruby, Python, Go, Scala, Kotlin, and PHP. So we've probably got you covered in terms <laughs> of languages. Um, then we've got our uh, our library analysis piece, our software composition analysis piece. And we actually include that In the first piece. So I I said it differently because everyone else sells it separately, but it's weird because it's one problem. You're analyzing one application. That's got some custom code and some libraries all mixed up together. And like I've been talking about the whole time, you have to analyze the whole thing. And so we analyze libraries at the same time we analyze the custom code and it allows us to do things other companies can't. Like we can tell you which of your open source libraries are actually used by the application. And it turns out more than half are never used, never invoked at all. They're just extra baggage in the trunk. And so, you know, we want to focus you on the libraries that matter, the ones that you really need to update. And so, you know, we generate S bombs and, and all that stuff. And then the, the last piece is our runtime protection piece. And this is a technology you can add to web apps and web APIs. Uh, we don't have it for serverless yet, but, uh, It prevents vulnerabilities in those applications from being exploited, whether they're in custom code or in library code. So for instance, when log4shell happened uh, in December, we quickly checked and we're like, yep, our, our runtime protection product, it's called contrast protect. It prevented that vulnerability from being exploited because we stopped the underlying exploit. We stopped the, it's usually expression language injection or uh, unsafety serialization that was getting exploited. And we prevent those vulnerabilities from being exploited. So our customers, we got some great quotes from our customers. They're like, well, the teams that were using Contrast, they can go home for the weekend. Everybody else has right. got to stay and you know, keep searching for Log4J and trying to find it. But you know we re- that, that event really showed off all the advantages of our product. We were right there helping them find the library, help them replace it, help them uh, make sure that they're protected in production so they didn't have a fire drill and they could take care of it with their normal release cycle. So sorry for the, the dump, that's essentially what, what we do and how we help companies like this this tool company. We come in with a platform that allows them to, to build their AppSec program in an automated way.
1: Don't be sorry, I asked, so thank you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and the world needs more serverless toasters and power tools, I think anyways that's awesome and and I, I think that again security is one of those things that just people don't want to talk about they don't want to think about it and it's such an important uh, such an important piece to building modern applications in the cloud so uh, awesome work that uh, that you're doing over there at contrast and yeah just you know we need to educate more people um, read the OS or the I'm sorry the OSWASP <laughs> top 10 um, learn about those dig deeper you know and uh, and and check out uh, check out some of the tools that are out there so uh, so Jeff thank you so much for being on on the show. It was great having you. I hope our listeners learned a lot. If people want to find out more about you or more about contrast and what you're doing, uh, what's the best way for them to do that?
2: Best way to contact me is probably LinkedIn. Uh, so, you know, connect with me. I post a lot about application security and serverless and, and so on. So, uh, you know, that'd be a great way. I'm, I'm totally open to asking, answering questions from folks about uh, AppSec. Probably the best way to find out about contrast is uh, go to our website. We've got a, a bunch of resources there. We're happy to talk to you about your AppSec program and helping you figure out how to get more efficient at it. And I just realized we made it through this whole conversation without talking about sprawl at all. Oh, right. Which is crazy. Cause you know, with serverless functions, that's kind of the big deal. I don't know what I'm thinking about, but like, you know, instead of having one big app, you've, now you've got a thousand serverless functions all interacting in different ways. Maybe we can take it up on a, on the next podcast, but uh, I just wanted to mention that you need to get some kind of inventory system in place so that you know where all your serverless code is and, and what it's doing and who, what it's connecting to and, and all that.
1: Well, a little uh, note for listeners as well. Um, if you are fans of the artist Keith Haring, uh, Jeff often uses uh, Keith Haring art in his post that he writes on LinkedIn. I really admired that. I loved that. And um, Oh, and he also asked for feedback on his post. So Jeff, I just wanted to note that because I think it's so neat. You talked about feedback a few different times. And like, I think in the open source world, it's so important. And I love how at the top of your post you are like, Hey, I consider this a draft and if you have feedback, I'm gonna edit it, I'm gonna update it and I'm gonna attribute it. So yeah, connect with Jeff on LinkedIn, read his posts, give him feedback and watch those drafts change.
2: That's so fun. That's something I learned at OWASP is, uh, you know, you make a product, you make some project and you put something out there, and there's going to be a lot of haters that come back and they're like, oh, you blew this or you messed this up. So my my reaction uh, initially was like, oh, that hurts my feelings. Now it's just like, oh, well, fantastic. I guess you want to help. So why don't right. you pitch in and help me make this better? And uh, it's, I think it's, yeah, it would be great if the whole internet was like that. That right. is my
1: vision for the future. Serverless and yeah. internet future in general. Like we're all in it together, moving toward productive, not just productive for production shake, sake, but you know. Constructive, I should say, um, yeah, help helpful relationships.
2: Have you been on Twitter lately?
1: Uh, you know, <laughs> I only follow Jeremy on Twitter. Good move.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, if we if we lived in a world where PRs were always welcome, um, that would be uh, that'd be pretty good. So, anyways, Jeff, thanks again. We'll make sure we get all this contact information into the show notes. This was great. Thanks, everybody. And that's this week's Serverless Chat. Rebecca and I want to give a huge thank you to Jeff Williams for being our guest this week and to our sponsor, Dexecure. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com 133. For more Serverless Chats, subscribe, sound it to be an insider, check us out on YouTube, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can connect with Rebecca on Twitter at Becca Odale, and me at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynun.io. Thank you so much for joining us. And we look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.